Thank you, team. If you have a Bible near you, open it up to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. It was a few winters ago, kind of a winter like we're having this year. It was a Thursday night. We had an elders meeting. It was late in the elders meeting. We could hear the ice pelting the window as the meeting was going on. Those meetings typically go fairly late, 10, 10, 30 that night or so. We come up out of the meeting to the front doors of the church and the solid sheet of ice had just glazed over the entire front doors of the church. You remember that? Those of you who were elders at that time. And um, they kind of, you know, looked at the biggest, strongest guy in the group and said, why don't you go ahead and throw your shoulder into that first, you know, Mr. Simpson. So I go up to the doors and I like, you know, I put a whole buck 70 ring and wet into this door. I just, boom, and it didn't. I mean, nothing. Go to the next set of doors, nothing, nothing. And I had this thought. I thought, Lord, I'm locked inside the church in an ice storm with all of the elders. I'd sure like to get home. And I think they would. So we ended up like scattering about the building until someone texts somebody else, I found a door that I could get out. You remember that? And then we all got out to the parking lot, and you could imagine, right, what was happening in the lot. It was a good half hour where we're all like falling out and scraping everybody's. It was that, boy, we're so thankful to live in Indiana type of night. But that story came to mind when I think about, isn't that a metaphor for seasons of life, chapters we find ourselves in? Some of you Perhaps we could look at the past 12 to 13 months, we've all been living in this place where you're kind of trapped inside of something, ice pelting, it's dark, it's late, and you really would like to get out, and you just kind of keep slamming yourself against an ice-covered door. Well, that's where the Israelites, where we're at in our storyline through the Bible, that's where we find the transition from the book of Genesis into Exodus. That's what's going on. We wrapped up the book of Genesis with Joseph being in a vice president of Egypt position in charge of the food distribution. Why was that important? Because there's a famine in the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, the promised land. There's a famine there. So all of Joseph's family, Jacob and all his 12 sons, remember the 12 tribes of Israel, they all head 400 miles south to Egypt to get food, to live, to survive the famine. And Joseph's in a position of leadership, and he gives them food. And so it looks, the end of Genesis, it looks like this is amazing. The Israelites are being saved. They're in a land where they're welcomed guests to the land. They're given provision and care. And then the beginning of the book of Exodus talks about the transition through the leadership ranks. So the king of Egypt, known as Pharaoh, he dies, the one who had most favorable towards Joseph. Joseph passes away. So you've got the regime of leadership kind of passes hands from generation to generation. And one of the pharaohs wakes up one day and looks out over the landscape of his country and says, there's several hundred thousand Israelites now. They've multiplied. They've been very fruitful. And he thinks, I've got a great idea. That's like free labor. And so he makes a decision to turn the environment for the Israelites from welcomed guest to enslaved laborers. And so, here's a few words in Exodus 1. If you have your Bible, you can trace. This is Exodus chapter 1. Here's a a little description of their Egypt, what it turned into. Verse 10 
of chapter 1. They dealt shrewdly with them. The Egyptians dealt shrewdly with the Israelites. They oppressed them with forced labor, verse 11. Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, verse 12. They worked them ruthlessly, verse 13. They made their lives bitter with hard labor, verse 14. Every boy that was born was thrown into the Nile. That was the directive from Pharaoh, verse 22. So if you just underline all the verbs there, shrewd, oppressive, ruthless, bitter, painful, abusive, that's their Egypt. And so two questions for this morning and two principles under each question. The two questions are, what's your Egypt and where's your redemptive edge? So what's your Egypt? We've all got our own personal Egypts. We've all got things that we feel kind of trapped under, oppressed by. We've all got things that are kind of draining the life out of us. We've all got things that are entangling us, that are holding us back from living the flourishing life that God's called us to live. What's your Egypt? What's my Egypt? What's our Egypt? And let's Be thinking as we go through the message today, I think there's power, there's wisdom in calling something by its right name. Let's put some names to our Egypts today. And then at the end of the message, we're going to ask Jesus to do something about it. So what's our Egypt? And it took them a couple hundred years, the Israelites, hopefully it doesn't take us quite that long, but it took them a couple hundred years to kind of name their Egypt and decide that in light of their current reality, they want it out. It took them a while. You know, the, the, the labor laws and the environment and the oppression, it kind of kept getting ratcheted up to the point where, this is the line, chapter 2, verse 23. Here's where it was about, we're about 200 years into their occupation uh, in Egypt at this point. It says, during that long period, that's why the Bible has these understatements, right? Long period, like a couple hundred years, gang. So for us North American suburbanites, you know, long periods like six months or something, 200 years for these guys. The king of Egypt died, Pharaoh. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So once we get a handle on naming our Egypt, here's the principle. The freedom, the call to freedom, to exit, to begin to leave your Egypt, it begins with a longing for things to be different. You see this? The Israelites themselves, they've been living under this oppression. They've been living under the Pharaoh's leadership. They've been living as enslaved laborers, but it wasn't too bad. It was kind of, it was okay, and then it just kept getting increasingly worse to the point you get to chapter 2, verse 23, and it says, God, we want out. And that's when stuff starts changing. Right? The, the movement towards freedom begins with this step of a longing for things to be different. Several years ago, a guy calls the church office and he says, I really, really need to speak to a pastor. And so uh, one of the staff grabbed me and said, hey, do you have time? This guy really wants to talk. And I said, hey, see if he can come in at sometime that afternoon. And so he came in, never met him before, never been to church here before. Um, he was just, I think, calling through churches looking to talk to a pastor. And he said on the phone, my life is such a mess. I've got to talk to someone today. And so he comes in, comes in my office, probably in his mid-40s or so, and he sits down. And he has like a little bag briefcase type thing. He opens it up, and he, he has a piece of paper, and he slaps a piece of paper on my desk and has four quadrants on it. I, we never met before. I don't even know if I had his name at this point. He just laid his piece of paper out, and he said, in the four quadrants, emotional, physical, spiritual, relational. 
And then he proceeded to go on a 15-minute diatribe through all four quadrants of his life, unpacking how across the board, it's completely unraveling. In my words, a complete train wreck across the board in the emotional, physical, spiritual, and relational components of his life. So I let him unpack that for several minutes, and when he took a breath, I jumped in at the breath point, and I said, well, can we have a conversation? Can we talk about this? That's why I'm here. Um, Can you give me some insight? Like, I'd like to know what you've learned about yourself and what you've done to kind of contribute to this current reality, like you. And then it went off, you know, well, she this, and they this, and he that, and there. I mean, just, I said, I'm talking, you, I'm, I'm trying to get to know and understand, like, you and where you are in all of this. And he, he started getting a little agitated. And he said, well, what are you getting at? And I said, well, The way I understand how God would want to bring change into this, you've come asking for help, is the the beginning point is that you can't do this on your own. Like, you need help. God is available to help, but the starting point is you've got to have some personal ownership around how we got to where we are. In the language of today's sermon, you've got to name your Egypt. You've got to get a handle on what it is that's oppressing you, entangling you, kind of draining the life out of you, holding you back. Like, put some, you got to get some clarity on that. And his response to that was, he went down a whole list. It was another 10 minutes of his multiple degrees, and he had a PhD in this, and a master's in that, and corporate training certificates, and certifications, and all these things that he was just completely confident that he can handle his life the way he wants to handle it. And so at the end of that, I said to him, I said, sir, you you are welcome to continue to live your life as you've been living it. But if you would like things to be different, then here's the like first step we got to work through. The 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 ownership of how we got to here and kind of what that's saying to you and a desire and to to look to God for some help. And of course, those of you who know the Bible, I'm working theologically in the space that the Bible calls repentance. Like you have to kind of agree, you got to turn from the way things are and you got to turn towards God for help and to realize you're not smart enough or strong enough to do it on your own. That's the theological term called repentance. It's what Jesus announces his whole ministry with. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. And in some subtle ways, I was trying to help this man move that way. And at that point, when I got to that point in the conversation, snagged the piece of paper, threw it in his bag, stood up, face was pretty red, and he said, I didn't come in here to talk about that. I want you to know that I'll be just fine. All, here's the last words I heard from him, I'll show you I'll be just fine. And he walked out of my office. I sat there at my desk and thought, how ironic that the whole premise of our conversation was that things weren't fine. Isn't, I mean, wasn't that the call into the office? I got to talk to a pastor. Wasn't that the four-quadrant diagram? In the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I'm going to run it how I want to run it. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll be just fine 
I'll show you. That's a personal Egypt right there. Uh, by the way, I've never seen him since. I hope he's doing well. I hope he's flourishing. I hope he's, I hope so. But we've all got an Egypt. We've all got something. Things where you look at, you feel locked behind, you feel oppressed by, you feel covered up with. and You know, I, I find it ironic that one of the reasons we kind of stay in our own personal Egypts is they're just kind of known and comfortable, even though it might be enslavement, oppression, and like, it's not super healthy, but it's not like, it's not so bad, so we're like, it's okay, we just kind of stay. And I'm convinced for the Israelites this way, the Israelites would have stayed camped out in Egypt unless the circumstances around them, could, like the heat of the circumstances had to get turned up to the point where they're like, God, we want out. Because, you know, he knew his destiny for his people was 400 miles north into the promised land. He had to get a million plus people from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And they were kind of settled in, kind of comfortable, even though the environment had become enslaved labor. I thought, that's kind of how it works in the human. That's like the shadow side of the human heart. We get so comfortable in our own places of enslavement and brokenness that we can't envision what life's like beyond it. And hear this now. Here's kind of the, the principle under this section. is like, it, it takes the, it, this is how God inserts like the pain. When the pain of your current circumstances, when the pain of your current circumstances exceeds the pain of change, things start changing. When the pain of your current circumstances, if it's kind of balanced out, it's like, well, it's not super healthy, but it's not terrible, so you're not, not a lot of change. I'll be just fine. But when the pain of your current circumstances, whoo, hits a tipping point, like that pain level goes up to a point and it outweighs the pain of change, things start changing. That's for the Israelites. We cry out to God. And that's the section we're going to read now. They, they hit this place where... They, they groan in their slavery. They, they, they cry out to the Lord in this place that they're in from their own personal Egypts. And now go to chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what we see. God picks a man, maybe not your first round draft pick, 80-year-old Moses, a sheep herder, minding his own business, tending his flock, a burning bush. God appears to him in a burning bush and speaks these words to 80-year-old Moses, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. See, they're living in misery. They've been in misery for a while. It's taken them a long time to say, I want out. That's the start of freedom. Do you want things to be any different? Or I'll be just fine, is the language of someone who just wants to stay in their Egypt. But they say, I see the misery. God sees it. I've heard. I want you to underline all the I haves in this. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Man, that's a sermon right there. Can you picture the Israelites going, hey, man. Can you hear the amens and the hallelujahs going there? When, he, when Moses is saying, I have seen. The Lord says, I've seen your misery. And the people say, hey, man, hallelujah. I've heard heard you crying out. Amen. He's heard us. I'm concerned about your suffering. Amen. Hallelujah. The Lord's concerned. I'm coming down to rescue. Yes, Lord. May it be so. Can you feel it? That's a sermon that's got some legs on it now. That's going somewhere. Yeah. Stay with. It's about to get real quiet because I'm going to bring them up out of the land flowing uh, into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. 
Amen, that's right. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Uh Uh-oh, that's not a welcoming community, so we need the Lord to come through there. Verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Amen, hallelujah, yes, Lord. Now, here we go. Verse 10, so now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Drop the mic, shut the mouth. It got real quiet in that sermon right there. (laughs) I have seen, I hear, I'm coming down to rescue. I'm going to do something about this oppression. And how's God say he's going to do it? So Moses, I pick you. I pick you. Now that was not probably, Moses was just minding his own business out in the desert. And now he's about to go to the the most powerful nation on the earth, the most ruthless leader in the world, and command that he let his million-plus labor force go. How do you think that conversation is going to go? That's the word. I send you. And so this is our second principle of the day as we get into the question of where's your redemptive edge. So the first thing you ask is, what's my Egypt? To get real clear with it. And understand that the journey to freedom starts with a longing for things to be different. The second question has to do with where's our redemptive edge? And the principle here is God's intervention. Do you see it? Frequently occurs through his people. Like when God wants to get stuff done in this world, that's why the New Testament calls us the body of Christ on earth. His intervention occurs through his people. He wants to do something about it. And God, from the earliest part here of this storyline of the with God life, do you see this disproportionate heart that God has to the most vulnerable in the world. That's a thread through this book. That God has a a disproportionate heart towards the poor, the oppressed, the slaved, the forgotten, the overlooked. Like God's heart is disproportionately turned towards those segments, the most vulnerable in our world. And God says, here's how I'm good. God's primary way of dealing with it is God sees, he hears their cries. He sees their hearts to want it to be different. He, he sees their desire to leave Egypt and want free. So he says, Moses, I pick you. That's his plan. Moses, I pick you. He commissions his people, hear this now, to engage the Pharaoh-hardened systems and the Egypt-darkened places. I'm going to say that again. He commissions his people to engage the Pharaoh-hardened systems and to enter the Egypt-darkened places for the glory of God and the sake of the most vulnerable in the world. That's how God gets stuff done in this world. This is what Jesus grabs a hold of when he's inaugurating his ministry in Luke chapter 4, and he grabs a passage from the book of Isaiah, and he says, the sovereign Lord is upon me, has anointed me, and you know this passage well, he's quoting, to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the prisoners, to let go, to let go the oppressed, they're going to be free from their oppression. Jesus applies that and says, that's why I'm here, that's what I'm to do. God has this disproportionate heart for the most vulnerable in the world. And you see from the earliest account of God forming, he's just forming this nation here. This nation's about to inhabit their long-term home, the promised land. And you see him directing his people. He calls Moses. Hey, Moses, I need you to do something about this. We've got to get this group of people out of this slavery, out of this oppression, out of what's entangling them, out of what's holding them back. We need to get them into this land of freedom. And I pick you. I pick you to do it. 
And isn't that how God's been doing it through all? When you study history, how's God been doing this in the world? How about here in just Exodus 1? One of the most vulnerable populations in all the world has always been children. They can't defend themselves. The children. God's heart's always been turned towards the children. Jesus has this disproportionate heart for the children. What is it about the children? They're vulnerable. They need help. They need someone to to come in. and, And look here in Exodus 1 when Pharaoh says, hey, tells all the Hebrew midwives, when the Israelite women are about to give birth, sit there, help them give birth as they've been doing. When it's a baby boy that's born, clip the umbilical cord and toss him in the Nile. You go, what? That was the directive from the king. And there are a couple of ladies listed by name in Exodus chapter 1. Shipra and Pua. You ever heard of those names before? It's chapter 1 verse 15. Two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, they say, you know what? No king. We're not going to treat a child as a commodity. We're going to honor the humanity and the dignity of God in them. They bear the image of God. We are not tossing them in the Nile. That's how God, like, he, a whole generation of Hebrew boys ends up being preserved and saved. One of them named Moses, by the way, is in this category. So Moses is one of those boys placed in a basket, sent down the Nile, and another woman kind of scoops him up out of the Nile. You see how God just provides different people along the way to protect and care for the most vulnerable. Fast forward to the world that Jesus lived in in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's view of children, children were just a, a transaction. They were something you'd exchange on the market. And it was a commodity. And if you didn't want your child anymore, you left them out in the elements to die. If you didn't want them, you just left them. Well, guess who found out about that? Followers of Jesus. They found out that the Roman Empire said children could just be tossed out and left to be dead. Guess what the Christians started doing? They started going and rounding up all the kids that were left, all of them that were forgotten, all of them that were left dead. No, we'll take them in. We'll raise them because we see the dignity and the honor of God in them. We see their humanity. Christians did that. Followers of Jesus were the ones to say that. That was the beginning of what's called the orphanage. That all started with followers of Jesus. Hospitals started with followers of Jesus when they said, hey, there's a lot of sick people here, and the empire itself like, forget about it if you don't have enough money to do it. No, Christians stepped in and said, we're going to provide care. We're going to provide physical care, emotional care, spiritual care for all those who are hurting. That's where the whole hospital things and organizations like the Red Cross and all these, they all come from these roots of followers of Jesus. And then when it came to the slaves themselves in the Roman Empire, when a slave would try to escape, their leader, their owner would often brand their face. And they said that they would brand their face so they would never be able to leave their oppression. Guess who stepped into that situation? Followers of Jesus. Christians stepped in and said, we're not going to treat humans that way. We're not going to brand their face as a slaved labor. It's the message to freedom that they've been set for. It's Christians. All along the way, do you see this? It's the history of how when he wants to get stuff done, he hears their cries, he sees their misery, he's concerned about the oppression, and he's going to do something about it. How? I pick you. Moses, I pick you. And he's still doing that today. When he sees and he hears and he knows. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I think we can insert our name in the text right there. Verse 10. 
think we can insert ourselves there. So now go. I pick you. Mike, I pick you. Sarah, I pick you. Deb, I pick you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I pick you. I pick you for what? I pick you to join life with God on the redemptive edge. Do you know where the redemptive edge is? The redemptive edge is right here. 80-year-old Moses. Hey, leave the quiet confines of the pasture, Moses. You're letting that go. Your next run is not going to be as peaceful there. I'm going to invite you out here on the redemptive edge. The redemptive edge is what? Where the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are right there, right there on that edge between Pharaoh and Yahweh, between Israel and Egypt on the redemptive edge where we find the point of darkness and we push it back with the light of Jesus' grace and hope and truth right there, the redemptive edge. And church, that's where life with Jesus is experienced. We're talking about this with God life all through this series. Here's the picture of, you want to meet Jesus and experience a life with him? We got to get out on the redemptive edge. That's where he is for the sake of the most vulnerable in the world. For the oppressed and the lost and the forgotten and the overlooked and the marginalized, the most vulnerable, that we got to get on on the edge and find that point of darkness and engage the Pharaoh-hardened systems and enter the Egypt-darkened places with the light of His grace and His truth. That's the I pick you thing. Do you see it? Where's your redemptive edge? That's a call to us as a church, a call to each of us individually, and it's a call to us as a body. Because by His grace in 2021, here's what we're going to do by His grace as a body. That we're going we're to create a discipleship movement here as a congregation that's living on the redemptive edge, looking for the point of darkness to bring the light of Jesus' hope and grace and truth right there for the sake of the most vulnerable in the world for the glory of God. That's what we're going to do. You can't be a disciple of Jesus not on the redemptive edge. It's an oxymoron. A disciple of Jesus is by definition at the edge where light and darkness are colliding. That's why we're still here. That's why when you give your heart to Christ, you just don't go immediately to heaven. You're here to do what this, most. I pick you. I pick you. I pick you. I see the mess and disaster that this world is, God says. We look at this past year and you just, how many times we shake our head and take deep breaths and scroll through our news feed and just go, what in the world is going on? God hears the cries. God sees. He knows. He understands. What's he doing about it? He's got his body of Christ all over the world. And he says, I pick you and you and you and you. Engage that darkness. Find that point of darkness. Bring the light. Push it back with the light of Christ's hope and grace and truth for the sake of the most vulnerable in the world. That's what we're doing. That's what it means to be Jesus' local church, expressing it here in the suburb of Indianapolis and then branching it out all around the world. That's what we're all about. And church, I, I can't think of a better reputation to leave in our community. Wouldn't it be something if the reputation of Eagle Church, when the topic came up in our community, in our city, that people say, what about Eagle Church? Man, those people... They just show up. They just keep showing up. Like, 
that situation, that problem, that's super complicated, super controversial. They just show up, and they just keep showing up, and they keep showing up. It doesn't matter how big the issue, it doesn't matter how complicated the problem, it doesn't matter how overwhelming the circumstances, that local church family there, those people, they just keep showing up. And they show up with the light of Christ's love and grace and hope and truth, right? We've got to show up with the life and the light of Jesus. That's where our, our discipleship and abiding with Him is so important when it comes to living on the redemptive edge because if we're honest sometimes, Christians show up not so much with the life of Christ that they're radiating. Whole another sermon on that one, I guess, but, and you can end up doing a whole lot more damage for His name than you are good, but we show up with the power of Christ and the fullness of the Spirit, we get out on the redemptive edge. We see where the most vulnerable. We find those Pharaoh-hardened places. We look for those Egypt-darkened spaces, and we see that point of darkness, and we push it back with the light of Jesus' hope and grace and truth. That's what it means to be a disciple, and every single one who claims his name is in. You're all in. You say, well, you didn't, get, you didn't vote. You don't get to vote. Your vote was when you said yes to Jesus. A yes to Jesus equals, what's my Egypt? I want out. A yes to Jesus equals, where's my redemptive edge? Put me there. That's a disciple of Jesus. And that's where you experience him. And perhaps someone listening today or here, you find that just kind of going through stretches of boredom in the Christian life. That's why God's like, there's no boredom in the Christian. I mean, look at our world. And get out on the redemptive edge. I don't know anyone living on the redemptive edge that comes to me and says, Pastor Eric, I'm just so bored with my Christian life. No. But if you got your four quadrant diagram, say, I'm just fine. I'll be just fine. I'll show you. Okay. And just kind of stay bound in your Egypt, locked behind your... But if you want to be free, notice God setting his people free to live on the redemptive edge. Do you see it? So here's how the rest of the chapter goes as I bring this to close. If you follow, the, here, here's the thread in chapter 3. I think I put it in your notes. God says, I pick you, Moses, in verse 10. Moses says, are you sure? It's okay. You can say, are you sure? It's okay to say that to God. I've said that to God a few times. Are you sure, Lord? God says, yes, I'm sure. Moses says, well, suppose I do go. Maybe this morning it's nudging you a little bit from, okay, suppose I do. God says, I thought you'd come around. And then Moses' conclusion is, not my will, but yours be done and he's off to Pharaoh's palace. So two questions for the morning. What's your Egypt? We've got to name it. You can't go from where you are to where God wants you to be unless you start with the journey right where you are. What's holding you back? What's entangling you? What's draining the life out of you? What's enslaving you? What's just, it's time to be free. Here, Name that Egypt, just kind of picture, just setting that before Jesus right now and hearing him say, it's time to be free. Be free, child of God. That's the message Jesus speaks into Egypt. Be free in Jesus' name. 
for the sake of, second question, where's the redemptive edge? Where's your redemptive edge? Where do you hear the voice of Jesus in your life these days saying, hey, right here, step out right here. Take a little risk for sure. Get out on the edge right here. See that point of darkness? Push it back with the light of Jesus' grace and truth and hope. Go after it. Don't sit on your hands. He picked you. He saved you. He filled you with the Spirit. He sealed you. He's commissioned you. He's called you. He knows you by name. He's got plans and purposes for your life. Your Ephesians 2.10 purpose. You've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God's prepared in advance. You know where those good works are? On the redemptive edge. That's where it is. And in 2021, church, by His grace, we're taking some big steps forward right there. Because that's key for a discipleship movement to be spawned. I close with this quote from Tertullian. Do you know who Tertullian is? He's one of the earliest church kind of theologians and writers. He lived in 155, so he was born about 120 years after Jesus was born. He lived in North Africa, really tough circumstances. Roman Empire was flourishing, super oppressive to the Christians. It looked like Rome was like, you know, the superpower, and there's this little fledgling group called Christians, followers of Jesus. Their leader was crucified and then raised, and the Roman Empire just keeps trying to stomp it out and stomp it out. Well, Tertullian writes this. I put this quote in your notes. He's writing to the Roman leaders with these words. We, speaking about Christians, are but of yesterday, but we fill your cities, islands, forts, towns, councils, camps, the palace, the senate, and the forum. We are but of yesterday, but we're everywhere. And Eagle Church, may that be said of you and me. That we look out into this world and we see massive points of darkness and we say, we're going to push it back with the light of His grace and His truth. And the commentary for everyone around would say those followers of Jesus, they're, they're everywhere. 190 nations right now, two billionists and counting. How'd that work, Roman Empire? Who got the last word there? Caesar's come and gone, palaces come and gone, empires come and gone, and Jesus' kingdom continues to spread out over the whole world, just like he promised it would. Primarily how? Through his people who decide they want out of Egypt to live on the redemptive edge. Let's pray. Father, in a morning like this, we just pause now and no doubt you stirred up some clarity on our Egypts and right now in Jesus' name, we just want to bring before you by name our personal Egypts and say by the power of your spirit for the glory of your name, we just set us free. I think of Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. So free us right now in Jesus' name from our Egypts. Unlock the doors, release the captives, break the chains, set the prisoners free in Jesus' name. Give us freedom by the power of the Spirit. Right now, just be breaking those things that have enslaved and entangled and oppressed. 
and then open our eyes and give us a vision for where our redemptive edge is. Where is it, Lord? Where do you want us to take a step towards that redemptive edge? To live in that contact point between Pharaoh and Yahweh, between Israel and Egypt, between light and darkness, to right there, to live in that edge. Give us courage, give us strength, give us energy of the Holy Spirit, give us boldness. Help us hear that whisper from the Spirit that says, I pick you. I pick you. And I've got good works for you to do. In Jesus' holy name, amen.